Psalm 110, this is a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauty beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Wonderful stuff there. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Um, our sermon today is Exodus 22, 1 through 15. It's entitled, The Responsible Thing to Do. And I want you to know that uh, this sermon today is almost all information. I got a couple things that I can tie into the New Testament. I don't have any pictures of Christ to speak of. It's all information, but it is important as you're reading the Bible, the more that you know of what something means, the more you can tie it into something else later. So uh, uh, I hope that you'll enjoy it despite it being more of an information type of uh, sermon. Uh, Exodus 22, starting in the first verse. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun is risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Well, that goes back to the law of the Hebrew slave that we saw just a few weeks ago. Um, if the uh, theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox, a donkey, or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who killed the fire, uh, kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. And whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, then it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, there shall be then an oath of the Lord shall be between both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make it good what was torn. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came in for its hire. And once again, like a sermon a few weeks ago, I had 
our uh, uh, retired police officer here on my mind through the entire thing because it's dealing with matters of the law. And uh, so, Vic, I want you to know I have you on my mind as I'm uh, typing some of these particular sermons. Um, anyway, I bet that every one of us can look back on our past life and we can think of a jillion times when we have either been wronged by another or we have wronged another in regards to personal property. Maybe you lent somebody something and they broke it or lost it. Or maybe you borrowed a car and got it scratched or dented while it was in your care. It could be that you went on vacation and took one of your pets to a shelter or to a friend for it to be taken care of while you were gone. And when you got back, poor Fifi the cat was missing or poor Rover the dog was dead. When something like that happens in life, there are times when no resolution between the two parties seems possible without either checking with what the law says or even being compelled to take the matter to a civil court for a decision. The law of Israel did not foresee every situation that could arise in advance, but it gave great general guidelines for many such situations. Some of these guidelines are still in effect in societies of the world today. They are common sense and they are precise as to what should be done. And then there are those times when the law did not provide specifics. At those times, the law was still specific in its own way. Bring the matter before the Lord and to those who judge for a decision. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, and they, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all of the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Israel was instructed to bring the people together every seven years to hear the words of the law. It was to be a reminder to them of their responsibilities towards the Lord and towards their fellow man. Some of the responsible things that they were to do in regards to their property and the property of their fellow man are detailed in today's verses. In keeping them or ensuring that they were properly judged when they weren't kept was important in order for the society to function properly. These and so many other fine details of the law are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is laws for theft. This is verses one through four. The following laws for theft are very brief and detail only three circumstances. The first is stealing property and converting it for another use. Second is housebreaking or burglary. And the third is stealing without having converted the stolen goods for another use. The ox and the sheep were principal types of valuable property within Israel, and so they are used as representative of stealing in general. The punishments, in principle, can then be considered representative of what is proper for other thefts as well. Verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In just the first verse of this chapter, there is a lot to consider. First, the idea of this and the following verses is theft. And certainly, more than just that is the intent of the heart. This is because different penalties are given for the act of theft based on what happens to the stolen property. If the main crime is simply theft of any kind, then there would be a unified punishment regardless of what happened to what was stolen. 
but there isn't. As we progress, this will be seen and looked into. In the case of verse 1, if someone steals an animal as described and slaughters it or sells it, the penalty is stated. Second, the word for slaughter is tabach. This is only the second of 11 times that it's going to be used in the Old Testament. Rather than a sacrificial type of slaughtering, this gives the idea more of butchering an animal for food. The thief willfully steals and then willfully sells or kills the animal to eat or sell his food. He thus profits off of the animal through his actions. Third, with the exception of Young's literal translation of the Bible, no translation, and I go through 20 of them for each sermon, no translation gives the proper sense of this verse. Two different words, two different Hebrew words are translated as ox, and two different words are translated as sheep in all other versions with the exception of Young's. The verse says, if a man steals an ox, the word sure, or a sheep, say, and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen, bahar, for an ox, sure, and four sheep, son, for a sheep, say. It's obvious that a distinction is being made between what is stolen and what is to be returned. Otherwise, it would have just used the same words. Instead of repeating the same word in English, the word herd is certainly more appropriate. An animal of the herd would be used to replace the specific ox or sheep. Therefore, it could be four bulls or four heifers for the ox or any combination, and it could be four sheep or four goats or any combination for the sheep. And actually, it should be five bulls, not four, but no matter what. He is to repay fourfold for having first stolen the animal and then having sold it or eaten it. His benefiting off the stolen animal is what is being considered in conjunction with the theft. Fourth, there is a difference in the required payment for an ox as opposed to a sheep, fivefold instead of fourfold. Scholars have varying ideas as to why. Some argue that it is more brazen or more audacious to steal an ox than it is to steal a goat. Others see that the penalty is higher for the ox because it is an animal from which profit can be derived, such as plowing fields. I would think that it's a mixture of the two. If it is true that one can benefit more from the sale of an ox than a sheep, then the one stealing the ox intends to benefit more from it as well. If he slaughters it and sells its meat, or if he sim simply sells it outright, the profit to him will be greater than for doing the same thing with the sheep. There is a strong purpose behind his evil intent to take the larger and more valuable animal. It would be like stealing a Maserati instead of stealing a Toyota. It is the heart which is being looked upon as well as the act itself. This principle was adhered to and acted upon elsewhere. When Nathan the prophet came to King David with the story of a person who wrongfully took a man's only precious lamb, David's response to Nathan's words was one of very great anger. Here's what he said. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Unfortunately for David, Nathan was using the lamb as a metaphor for Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, whom David took as his own. It was he who was in the wrong. In the New Testament, Zacchaeus, the wee little man in the sycamore fig tree, was so elated that Jesus desired to eat in his home 
that he rushed down the tree and entertained the Lord. In his great joy, we read this in fulfillment of this precept in the law. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Verse 2, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. The second law of theft is concerning burglary. The word for breaking in is machteret. This is its first of only two uses in the Bible. It means burglary or secret search. And it comes from the word katar, which means to dig. The idea is that one has to dig, as it were, in order to forcibly break into a house or to conduct a secret search. This would involve the use of an implement to either dig through the earthen wall, which houses were made of at the time, or to dig through the bolted door of the house. In the case of a person who so breaks in, if he is struck and is killed, the person who killed him is to be absolved of any wrongdoing or blood guilt. What this means is that the avenger of blood may not come after him to exercise his right of vengeance. And there are several reasons for this. The first is that by digging into a house, any implement that he had could then be used as a weapon. This would immediately come to mind in anyone who is quietly sleeping and then suddenly awakened by a thief in the night. The thought of murderous intent would be at the forefront of his thoughts. The second reason is that at such a dark hour, the thief himself couldn't be identified. His features, his size, the intent of his eyes, all of these things could not be determined. The one in the house would have no idea who they were up against or even if they could safely flee. And third, anyone who did commit such a burglary and who got away could not later be identified. Therefore, there would be no justice for his offenses. By breaking in at night and under the law which was given to the people of the land, he would subject himself to the possible penalty of that law by forfeiting his own life. Verse 3, if the sun has risen on him, There shall be blood guilt, guilt for his bloodshed. The word for has arisen here is zarach. It means the dawning of the sun when it shoots forth its beams. At such a time, the sky would be illuminated enough to send light into a house and make a thief recognizable. A burglar in such an instance was not to be killed or the guilt of blood would be on the head of the one who killed him. The idea is surely that the person could recognize the intruder and flee for his own safety, and then he could later identify the burglar who would then be convicted for his crime. He would be required to pay for his theft according to the other precepts within the law. Verse 3 going on, he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. This portion of verse 3 is said by some scholars to be out of place because the first half of it notes that there would be guilt for his bloodshed. They say that it thus presupposes that there was bloodshed. This is incorrect. Rather, it presupposes that the one who was in the house won't shed his blood, just as the law requires. Instead of killing the burglar, it says, Shalem yishalem, restoring, he shall restore. In place of vengeance on the offender, there will be justice for the offended. The guilty will keep his life and he will hopefully learn his lesson through restoring damages and losses incurred by the owner. However, if he is unable to restore according to the law, then according to the law, he was to be sold for his theft. The word theft is genebah. In the Old Testament, it is only used here and in the next verse. It is the noun form of the act of stealing. It is the thing stolen. 
the thief becomes liable to become property for having put his hand into another man's property. In this, the words shall be sold would better be translated as should be sold. The entire verse then is one of justice. To paraphrase it, one could say, if the sun has risen, instead of killing the person and incurring blood guilt, the thief should fully restore what he has stolen or he should be sold to replace the thing stolen. Verse 4, if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox, a donkey, or a sheep, he shall restore double. An emphasis is given in this verse, which is translated as certainly. In Hebrew, it says, If finding is found in his hand, the theft. It is what we would say in English, being caught red-handed. If a thief is so caught and the animal which is stolen is still alive, then only double restoration is required. This then is a justice of retaliation. The thief loses the very amount that he anticipated gaining. In contrast to verse 1, where the animal was butchered or stolen or sold, the matter is looking at the intent of the heart here. Until the animal or thing is disposed of, there was always the chance that the thief would own up to his own theft and restore it. It would mean that he would incur a double cost of restoration, but he would be spared an even higher cost. And it could be that he would even seek mercy and not have to pay back double of the amount that he had stolen. But once the animal was dead, such a chance of restoration was impossible. It had become an aggravated crime from a hardened heart. As long as the animal was alive and in his possession, the possibility for repentance and full restoration was available. This is similar to what happened to the sons of Jacob when they went down to Egypt to buy grain during the great famine in the land. When they came back, the money that they had taken to buy the grain was found in their own sacks. In order to ensure that the mistake was covered, Jacob instructed them with these words, take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. On a spiritual level, double repayment for wrongdoing is also a biblical consideration. This is not just something found in the precepts of the law. It is something that the Lord is going to hold Israel accountable for. The people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, and the people were punished for it. Double, in fact. These verses concerning the protection of the physical assets of the people are also given to show what is just and due concerning the people's relationship with the Lord. Here's what it says first from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The idea of double punishment for the sins of the people is not unique to Isaiah. It's also found in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. In the end, the double punishment of the people was literally carried out in a double exile, first to Babylon and then by the Romans in A.D. 70. However, after the times of double punishment, the Lord promises not just restoration, but double restoration. Listen to these wonderful words of something that is happening in our own lifetime. Also for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare to you that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow fitted the bow with Ephraim and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. That her warfare is ended, peaceful streets she shall trod. Her iniquity is pardoned and she is made pure. For she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins, the payment has been made. And now her future lies ahead, ever so grand. For her dirty rags, garments of white, she will trade. The double punishment was due and it was just, but now double blessing will come upon Israel. For her will come joy and health so robust to my jewel Israel, this promise I now tell. Our second thought today is laws for negligence or fraud. It's verses 5 through 15. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Like many of the verses so far, this one implies a permanent dwelling in the land of Canaan, and it also implies private property. The law was given in anticipation of both, and it implies both. Possession of the land of Israel by Israel and possession of parcels of land by individuals. The last time that a vineyard was mentioned was all the way back in Genesis 9 verse 6 when Noah planted a vineyard and got drunk off of the wine from it. Israel is being given directives for something that they will inherit and which they will have a right to. When that comes about, protections will be in place for their land and for their labors. Translators vary in how they translate this verse in one of two main ways. One is willful negligence, as if the animal was purposely let loose in another person's field. You'll read some uh, translations and it'll sound like that. The other is careless negligence, where an animal is let out to eat and it wanders over to another man's field. Whichever is the case, actually, the owner is negligent and he is to be held accountable for his actions. The restitution, though, is not double forfeiture, but simple restitution. However, it is to be from the best of his vineyard. The word best or metav is very rare in scripture. It's only used six times in the Bible. It always refers to either the best of the land or the best of animals. On a spiritual level, this verse can be equated with taking the best of something from someone for their having taken that to which they had no right when they took it. This is explained in Jesus' parable to the people in Luke chapter 14. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you were invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and uh, him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when you, when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, we are to carefully ensure that we only take that to which we are entitled. We are to be responsible to not tread into areas which we are not entitled to, because when we step out of those bounds, then we are liable for having our own best taken from us. Verse 6, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. This verse here, and I hope you enjoy this verse, it is filled with fun words. The first one is thorns or coats. It hasn't been seen in the Bible since the Lord cursed the ground in Genesis chapter 3. 
Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, coats. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It implies to the people that they will still be living in a fallen world when they enter Canaan. God was not taking them to their heavenly dwelling place. The thorns will be so abundant that fields will be set on fire to burn them out in order to prepare the fields for use. Jameson Fawcett Brown notes this. They say this refers to the common practice in the East of setting fire to the dry grass before the fall or autumnal rains, which prevents the ravages of vermin and is considered a good preparation of the ground for the next crop. The very parched state of the herbage and the long droughts of summer make the kindling of a fire in operation often dangerous and always requiring caution from its liability to spread rapidly. The word kutz comes from the word kutz, which means summer. Thus, the thorns are those things which spring up rapidly in the heat of the summer when other things struggle in the heat in the lack of the rain. The word for stacked grain here is gadish. It's the first of four times that it's going to be used in the Bible. It means a heap of something or a tomb because a tomb is raised up like a heap. The word for standing grain here is ha-kama or the standing. This comes from kum, which means to arise or to stand up. And finally, the word for fire here is an unusual noun form of a word used only this once in the whole Bible, ha-be'era. It means the burning. Taken together, the words supply us a picture of what's going on. Much of it has to be inferred, but the inferences clear up the difficulty of the verse for us. A person is preparing a field at the end of the summer for the next crop to be planted. In order to do so, he sets the field on fire to clear out the thorns. When he does, the fire gets out of control and it moves into the next field where the farmer is still working on this year's crops. He either has stocks piled up in heaps or still standing grain waiting to be harvested or maybe even both. When the fire gets into his field, it destroys his grain and all of the work that he has done. Hence the use of the word ha-be'era or the burning instead of the usual word for fire, which is esh. As John Lang says about the consequences of his action, he says the carelessness is imputed to him as a virtual incendiary because he did not guard the fire. His own profits are to be consumed because of his negligence in not keeping the burning restrained. Although not nearly a literal translation, the New Living Translation of the Bible probably gives the best sense of this verse for us to comprehend. Here's how they translate it. If you are burning thorn bushes and the fire gets out of control and spreads into another person's field, destroying the sheaves or the uncut grain or the whole crop, the one who started the fire must pay for the lost crop. Although looking over a bunch of obscure words in an obscure verse of the law seems like an unimportant thing to do, by doing so, we can almost mentally insert ourselves into the fieldwork of ancient Israel and understand the trials and the difficulties of those tedious labors. And so if you enjoy understanding the nuances of farm life in Israel and seeing them in your mind's eye, these word studies are far from pointless. I was so excited after doing that verse. I was like, man, I know something about Israel I never knew before just because of word studies. Verse 7, if a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. 
Delivering money or articles to a neighbor to keep was very common in the past. Before there were banks, if someone went on a journey or was going to be gone from their house for whatever reason, they would entrust their valuables to a neighbor for safekeeping. There was also the practice of depositing goods by a debtor to a creditor. As a fellow Israelite, he would be considered a neighbor, even if a creditor. When the debt was paid off, the personal goods were to be returned. In such a circumstance, if that property was stolen and the thief was found, the thief was required to pay double, just as the thief would pay in verse 4. After that, the matter would be considered settled. However, verse 8, if the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. Should no thief be apprehended in the matter, then the suspicion would naturally fall on Baal Habet, or the master of the house. If this were the case, the owner of the property had a right to bring them forward to have the matter settled. However, from this point on, a dispute arises as to whom the matter is to be brought to. The Hebrew reads, El Ha Elohim, or literally, to the God, or to the gods, if you want to say the plural. For this reason, many translations vary in this verse. If it means the gods, then it is speaking of human judges who are also referred to as Elohim or gods. However, because Hebrew also has the commonly used word shoftim, which means judges, I think that this is very unlikely. Rather, the verse is more appropriately translated as the English Standard Version renders it. Here's how they say it. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand into his neighbor's property. In Israel, there was a way of inquiring of God using stones, which were known as the Urim and Thummim. These would be used in a case such as this to determine whether the master of the house was guilty or not. Knowing that this type of inquiring of God was available would be a deterrent in and of itself. However, if guilt was found, punishment was to be brought to the one who was guilty. Verse 9, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Whatever was entrusted to the individual and which was then lost or unrightfully claimed as the possession of another, the parties were given the opportunity to make their case. The word for lost thing here is abedah. It is the noun form of the word abad, which means to lose. It is used for the first of only four times in the Bible, and they're only found in the books of Moses. What is implied is that it is the property of one person which is claimed as belonging to another. Hence, a lost thing. In such an instance of fraud, the two parties were to come together before Ha Elohim, or the God, for a decision. When so presented, it says that whomever Elohim or God condemns will be required to pay double to his neighbor. In this verse, like the previous verse, the translation is far better using God than judges. It should literally read, The case of both parties shall come before the God, the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Okay, if your Bible says judges, it's not incorrect. It's just the translator's preference, but I think certainly it is speaking of the God. It is God who looks upon the heart, and it is God who decides who is to be condemned. This word, condemn, or rasha, is introduced into the Bible here. It means to find wicked or to condemn. The one who has acted wickedly and is found out is then required to pay 
double for the theft. Verse 10, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it. This verse here is parallel to verse 7. It could be that the owner of the animal went on a vacation or some other business, or it could be that he entrusted his animal to a herdsman whose business it was to take care of flocks and herds. In whatever case, the one who received the animal became responsible for the care of the animal, whatever type it was. Should it die in his care, or should it be hurt in his care, or should it be taken captive even by marauding raiders? It doesn't matter. For any such reason as this, then the rights of both parties need to be protected. Verse 11, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods. In such a case, then a Shavuot Yehovah, or an oath of the Lord, shall be made by the one who had custody of the animal, that he did not transgress the law in the case of it. The mentioning of the oath of the Lord is a very rare thing in Scripture. As Matthew Poole says concerning the oath of the Lord, because it is taken by his authority and appointment, meaning the Lord, and for his honor and in his name alone, God being made both witness and judge and avenger thereby. Such an oath was considered so weighty and so terrible to be violated in such a case that the matter was to be considered settled. Verse 11 continues, and the owner of it shall accept that and he shall not make it good. Because of the weighty and the terrifying nature of such an oath and the consequences for lying in connection with it, the owner was to accept what was spoken before the Lord and the one who had custody of the animal was freed from any further liability. Now, as a short diversion, what I want to do is I want to take a quick look at the penalty for violating the Shavuot Yehovah or the oath of the Lord from 1 Kings chapter 2. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I will not live to make it to 1 Kings chapter 2 in a sermon. So I want to read you one example in the Bible of what it means to violate the oath of the Lord. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. This is Solomon speaking to this person. For it shall be on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so shall your, ser so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achis, the son of Maaka, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achis at Gath to seek his slave. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord, the Shevuot Yehovah, and warn you, no, saying, no, for certain, that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, the word that I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, moreover, to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father, David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Verse 12, but if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. 
Ve'im ganav yeganev me'imo. But if stealing it was stolen from with him. The statement is emphatic, especially the words from with him. It implies that there was either negligence or an underhanded aspect to what occurred. The property was either stolen from among the caretaker's own things, and yet his own things weren't stolen, which would then suppose that there was fraud involved, or it might imply that with simple diligence, the loss would have been prevented. In other words, he was grossly negligent. In either case, the one who had custody would be required to make full restitution for the loss. This thought harkens back to their forefather Jacob, who bore the loss of his uncle's flocks even when he was diligent and not in the wrong. Here's what's recorded there from Genesis 31. These 20 years I have been with you, Jacob speaking to his uncle Laban. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Verse 13, if it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good on what was torn. Imtaruf yitaref, another statement of stress. If tearing it was torn, it implies that a beast got hold of the animal and tore at it until it died. In such a case, the one with the custody over the animal was not to be held liable. Though the account of Jacob precedes the law, these words demonstrated the unfair treatment Jacob received at the hands of his uncle as he tended to his flocks. In bringing the remains of the animal then, it was considered sufficient evidence that he had acted properly. Though a beast had attacked an animal under his care, he had been vigilant enough to go after it and courageous enough to take what remained from that beast. This is something that David claimed that he had done to prove that he had the courage to face Goliath. When speaking to uh, Saul, in 1 Samuel 17, we read this. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Verse 14, and if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. This verse deals with lending, which is intended for the benefit of the one to whom the loan is made, not for the one lending. To borrow implies that one expects to gain advantage from what is borrowed. Because of this, the borrower was under the full obligation of protecting and returning whatever he borrowed. If I go to Jay and I borrow something from him, I'm responsible for what I borrowed from him, right? Therefore, regardless of how it was hurt or how it died, it was the responsibility of the borrower to make good on the loan. As an exception, the words, the owner of it not being with it, implies that if during the time of the loan, the owner happened to have it under his care when it was injured or it died, then he wouldn't have to make good on the loan. This became explicit, or this becomes explicit in the next verse, verse 15. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. This is a very fine point within the law, which is given for the protection of a borrower. If in fact they had borrowed something, and yet it happened to be in the possession of the owner when it was hurt, 
then there would be no need for restitution. As an example, a man borrows an ox for two weeks to plow the field, okay? If the owner came by to use the ox for 20 minutes to remove a large boulder from his own field and the ox is hurt at that time, then the owner could not say to the borrower, you have to pay for the ox because it has been lent to you for two weeks and you still have a week of use left in it. So suppose I borrow a hammer drill from Jay, right? And I say, I'm going to use this for the next two weeks. And then Jay comes over and he says, I need it just to put a hole in the side of my car, okay? He takes it out to the car and he ruins the thing and then he gives it back to me. I'm not responsible for it. I, even though I have another week of hammer drill use, I'm not responsible. Okay, thanks a lot for that, Jay. This statement preempts any such claim and it would help keep the courts clear of any such niggling over minutia in the type of this arrangement. All right, verse 15 finishes with these words. If it was hired, it came in for its hire. As one final point, these words are given. Hiring out an animal is different than both borrowing an animal and having an animal entrusted into another's care. In the case of hiring it out, the risk of the hire was to be considered as a part of the calculation that the owner should make upon fixing his price for the hire. If he had an ox and the neighbor wanted to hire it out for, say, 50 shekels of silver, then he had to consider, is that sufficient for renting it out in case the ox gets hurt or dies? If so, then should that happen, he had received his payment in advance and the one who hired it was absolved from any further responsibility for the animal. Now, in the past 15 verses, there is intent that the people would be protected in matters of private property. It is taken as an axiom throughout the Bible that man has a right to his own property and that when someone unlawfully takes it or is negligent in caring for it, that they had the responsibility under the law for their actions. It might seem trivial to us that God would set down such minute precepts when he is God of all things and all things ultimately belong to him. But if we consider that God has made us free moral entities and that he cares for us in that regard, then it follows naturally that he would want his people to be cared for and free from loss or worry. In other words, it shows an immensely loving attitude by the Lord to set down these laws for his people. From that point, we can then logically see that if he cares about our welfare and our protection in this worldly life, how much more do you think he cares about our welfare and our salvation unto eternal life? And then, considering that he allows us the choice to either obey his laws or reject them and to either return our love to him or to shun him, it shows how truly loving he is. God doesn't force himself upon us. Instead, he makes himself known to us so that we will want to fellowship with him. And the greatest of such demonstrations of all is when he entered into the stream of humanity and walked among us. In doing so, he showed us his very heart. He said, I know that this law is big. It's filled with mandates and it is impossible for you to live it out perfectly. But I have come to do that for you. If you will just trust me, I will live out the law on your behalf. This is what Christ did for us. He came as a man born under the law to redeem us from the law. As you read these commands and these precepts, don't be overwhelmed by what God has mandated. Rather, be overwhelmed that Christ was born under it and he lived under it in order for him to set us free from it. Trust this is what God would ask you to do, to trust that he can save you from this law by fulfilling it for you.
Trust in Jesus and be saved. Call on Jesus and everything in this law that you have violated will be washed clean by his shed blood. If you've never called on Jesus, please just do it today. Our closing verse today comes from Romans 3. It's verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's all we're seeing here. All of these precepts is the knowledge of sin. If God didn't give them these laws about these minute things, then they wouldn't be held guilty. But then he gives them this law, obviously for their own good, but it shows them how guilty they are before this law. And Christ came to live the law and to redeem us from this law. It's nailed to his cross. All right. Next week is Exodus 22, 16 through 31. Living properly both day and night, it's entitled That Which is Morally Right. That'll be our 61st Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem for you today entitled The Responsible Thing to Do. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, it he does not keep, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. His penalty is the spot where he lies. If the sun has arisen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft instead. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double, even if this penalty sounds kind of steep. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and his animal lets loose and it feeds in another man's field, which is not for his personal use, he shall make restitution from the best of his own personal field and to the best of his own vineyard. This to the one he wronged, he shall yield. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindles the fire shall surely make restitution for the losses which the owner assumed. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and along comes trouble, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house, you shall understand, shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has into his neighbor's goods put his hand. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothes, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, but for sure no one knows, the cause of the parties shall come before the judges." And whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor, despite his grumps and grudges. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or is driven away, no one seeing it, and no one makes a peep, then the oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's stuff. And the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. The oath is enough. But if in fact it is stolen from him, to you I submit, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good on what was torn, it shall fall under the hand of providence. 
And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. This I do apprise. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came in for its hire. This is understood. Thank you, O God, for watching over us and caring about even the small things we face. Thank you above all for sending Jesus and for his overwhelmingly abundant grace. For this law, which we have time and time again failed, to his cross our failings have forever been nailed. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful little portion of scripture. It's a lot of rules. It's a lot of regulations and uh, it uh, just shows us that much more how desperately we need Jesus because I'm sure everybody here would say that they've felt something, whether it's small or big in their life, or they've done something which would offend their neighbor in a way which would cause them to make restitution. And yet, even those little things are enough to separate us infinitely from you. And instead of that horrible end, you sent Jesus to redeem us back from this law. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the knowledge that we can gain from it, even verses which we often read and just pass over without thinking about them, the marvelous little insights that we can get from them with a deeper study. Thank you for that opportunity. And we do pray, Lord, for this this uh, person that was burned, Alan, over 60% of his body. We would pray that you would be with him and help heal him, bring him back to restitution. And uh, if, if he uh, does want to join the military, that he would consider that wisely. Maybe this is something that you have led him through for a different reason. Whatever it is, may you be glorified through it. And Lord, I pray for those who are traveling today. Jim and Linda, as they're out uh, getting ready to go on a cruise, and uh, Copanan, who are coming back from a cruise right now, and for anybody else that isn't here today, for whatever reason, that you would tend to them, take care of them, and bless them. Lord, we love you. We uh, commit the Lord's table to you, and uh, we thank you for every good blessing that you've blessed us with. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, there Paul writes these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <sighs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to come to the Lord's table to remember what your son did, his death on the cross. And we pray for a speedy return of him for us. Lord, the world is just going down the pipes. It's just spiraling out of control. And your people are waiting longingly for your return. Should you delay, we will continue to persevere. We'll continue to study your word and to praise you and to glorify you. But we long to be in the presence of our dear Lord Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.